So here in Acts 17, he preached in Athens in a way that that was calculated to express what the Christian faith had in common with Athenian philosophy. He spoke about God, he spoke about man, he spoke about repentance, and about resurrection and judgment. So what we're going to do this week is listen to his sermon all over again. I essentially plan to preach the sermon that Paul preached in Athens, or at least to use what's here in the text, his points, and his applications. So I've outlined that on the back of your bulletin. You can see that outline there, and we're going to hear at least something close to the same, the same skeleton, the same outline, the same applications that Paul delivered to the Areopagus Council during his time in Athens sometime around the year 52 A.D. So listen now to the sermon as it's summarized here by Luke. Acts 17, starting at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand your word. Help us to see you as creator, as provider, as the source of humanity. And Father, help us to seek you, not to think wrongly of you, but rather to repent in light of the coming of Judgment Day. We ask that you would help us to focus on your word, free us from distractions, plow up our hearts that the seed of the word might fall in it and produce fruit a hundredfold, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul was, we find ourselves 
in an environment that craves newness. That's what everyone in Athens wanted. Verse 21. They all spent their time in nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. Certainly we know that the news, new stuff, new information, new items, new music, new movies, new clothes, new cars. Newness drives our own world, our own culture as well. So what did Paul have to say when he came to a city that was novelty oriented? Well, he started with this point of contact, the religiosity of his audience. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And that's not a good point of contact for our culture. Yes, there are more churches than gas stations in the United States. Most of those churches uh, are hangovers from a previous era. That is, your typical gas station is probably newer than your typical church. We, as Americans, are, yes, the most religious country in the West, but we're still not very religious. Most Americans would tell you that they are spiritual, but not religious. So this point of contact that Paul uses with the Athenians, who are very religious, (coughs) is not the same point of contact that we would use in speaking to our own culture. Instead, our culture is very moral. Our culture is very spiritual. We may say, there's problems with your morality. There's problems with your spirituality. And of course, Paul says to the Athenians, there's problems with your religiosity. But he, in all fairness, addresses them and says, I see how religious you are. And in the same way, we should say to our culture, I see how deeply driven by moral ideas like equality you are. See how deeply driven you are by the desire for being right, being good. So Paul connects with his audience on this question of religion, and then he tells them, you can know God, and you should seek God, and you should repent before God. That's the message that he preached. Know God, seek God, repent before God. So he finds his point of connection to Athenians in their religiosity. And he is honest in his approach. And this is incredibly important. Paul says, I saw an altar that said to the unknown God, or better, to an unknown God. There are so many altars in Athens, so many temples, so many statues of gods. The most famous of them all, of course, is the Parthenon, parts of which are standing to this day. What is that? That is a temple built to the goddess Athena, the patroness of the city, and the one after whom it was named. So Athens today is still very proud of the Parthenon, even though it's partially ruined. In Paul's day, they were very proud of the Parthenon. Paul doesn't start with the Parthenon. He starts with this altar to an unknown god. Now, what he does not do is take this unknown god and fill it with Christian content. And in fact, there's several misleading translations in our Bibles, the one whom you worship without knowing, that's not what Paul said. He didn't say, you have an unknown God, I'm going to pour Christian content into this unknown God and tell you who he really is. Rather, Paul says, you admit ignorance. He should say, what you worship 
ignorantly, I will correct. I will tell you knowledge. In other words, Paul essentially says, I'm speaking to agnostics. You say, you freely admit, in fact, that you don't know. My knowledge will correct, will heal your ignorance. That's the message that Paul proclaimed. Rather than taking their unknown God and filling it with Christian teaching, he takes their ignorance and says, you admit to being ignorant. I will give you knowledge. And that's the polarity then that he addresses throughout the speech. Ignorance versus knowledge. Not knowing versus knowing. What does Paul know? Well, he starts by proclaiming that he knows God the Creator. God who made the world and everything in it. God is Creator. Where did the world come from? Where did the things in the world come from? Ultimately, their source is in God. You can talk about how God put them here. You can talk about when God put them here. You can talk about why God put them here, whether he used evolution, whether he used, didn't use evolution. Paul says we're not going to discuss that. We're going to say that when you cut through all of it, in the final analysis, the reason that the world is here is that God put the world here. It's knowledge that Paul has that he is proclaiming over against the Athenians' ignorance of where the world came from. And he adds, God is Lord of heaven and earth. God didn't only make it originally, he's still in charge of it now. We, we don't like that. We have this idea that if you make it and you sell it to me, it's now mine. Big tech is trying to adopt the model more along the lines of divinity. I saw an article this week. Soon you will rent your iPhone. But already, of course, you don't own your cell phone. The company that made it owns it. And if they decide to shut it down, it still works as a camera, perhaps. But the only reason your smartphone works is because it's connected to the network of its manufacturer. If Google or Apple shuts off your phone, there is nothing you can do. You don't own that phone. The only reason it works is because it's connected to their network and it plays by their software on their terms, which you literally have to sign before you're allowed to turn it on and start using it. God treats the world the same way. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He made it. He didn't let it go. It still operates on his terms of service. It's still under his control. He can turn it on or shut it off at any time he pleases. So Paul says, you say ignorance. I correct your ignorance. I respond to your ignorance with knowledge. God is creator. God is Lord. And God does not dwell in your wonderful little Parthenon. You have a Parthenon. Fabulous. Great. There's nobody in it. 
Because Paul says, look around. God made heaven and earth. What is better than the Parthenon? The planet. What's more glorious than your statue of Athena? The night sky. The God who made heaven and earth doesn't need you to make him a beautiful temple. He could make himself something better and has made himself something better than anything you might make. Parthenon is magnificent. Heaven and earth are orders of magnitude more magnificent. That's God the Creator. In fact, He needs nothing. He is not worshipped with men's hands. How could God need something? You bring food to your idol? You have flocks of priests and slaves in the temple who serve Athena and the other gods of Athens? But think about it. If God made heaven and earth, God can make anything He could possibly need. He doesn't need you. Paul's message. God made heaven and earth. God doesn't need anything from you. God is not going to go bankrupt if you stop paying your temple tax. God is not going to lose His his majesty, His glory. He's not going to starve to death if you stop offering (laughs) sacrifices, Paul says. What is he doing? He's taking their ignorant conception of God and replacing it with the knowledge of God. He's correcting their ignorance. In fact, he says God is the provider. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. We just posited that the world in the final analysis comes from God. In the same same way, where does your life come from? You can say, from my parents. Sure, so it does. Where did their life come from? From their parents. And so on, all the way back to what? Eventually, you understand that life originated with God. We have to pay for water. We have to pay for food. But we don't have to pay for breath. God gives us air. He surrounds us with air and it's free because it's a gift of God. God is the provider. You don't have to pay for your life. It's a free gift from your parents and ultimately from your God. You don't have to pay for air. It's a free gift from your God. In fact, everything you have, if you trace back Where did this come from? It might have a sticker on it that says made in USA or a little label that says made in China. But if you ask, well, where did USA come from? Where did China come from? Where did the raw materials, the parts, the creativity that made this thing, you will eventually find God. Everything we have. God the provider, in fact, not only gives us what we have, but he made the human race from one man. This is a new idea in Athens. This is just the kind of thing they love, a new idea. As far as we can tell, searching through all extant classical literature, no one, as I mentioned last week, had ever thought maybe the entire human race descended from one primal couple. Hadn't crossed their minds. They had not thought about running the tape backwards all the way to the beginning and seeing Adam and Eve in the garden. Paul says... Where did your life come from? It came from one man from whom God made every nation. (coughs) 
Christian teaching is opposed to all forms of racism or the idea that certain kinds of people are better than other kinds of people. No, we're all the same people. We're all descended from one. We're part of the same human family or human race. That's the only race, that's the only family that there is. Now, the Athenians did not believe that. They believed that they were Greeks. And what did they call the rest of the world? Oh, yes, that's right. Barbarians. Two kinds of people. Greeks and barbarians. And they came up with the name barbarians by imitating what they considered to be the dumb, uneducated speech of the other people they encountered who said, bar, 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 bar. And you take bar, bar, and that is a barbarian. Someone who can only say bar, bar. That's the Athenians' racist attitude towards their slaves, towards everyone who is non-Athenian, non-Greek. Paul comes and says, no, that's ignorance. You need to understand that God made the human race from one single man, or one married man. From him has sprung everyone who lives. And not only that, but God determines historical periods. This question of periodization is one of the trickiest factors in historiography. When did World War II begin? As an American, you would say December 7, 1941. As a Brit, you would say we declared war on Hitler on September 1, 1939. As a Jap, you would say we declared war on China in 1931. Historians fight all the time about periodization. We use, throw around terms relating to periods. The 16th century, the antebellum period, the 19th century, the short 20th century, 1917 to 1989. Uh, all these different questions. When does this period really begin and end? Because if you get that wrong, you misunderstand the nature of the phenomena what happened within that period, but Paul says historical periods ultimately are determined by God. God invented the Bronze Age. He invented antiquity and the distinction between antiquity, the medieval period, and modernity. We throw around these periods and say there's definite differences between them. And Paul says, where did those differences come from? Oh, that's right, from the God who invented periodization. And also, it gets more personal than that. God selects home sites. He has determined the boundaries of their habitation. Go down to the county courthouse and see the official plat book that has the boundaries of your lot marked within it. Where did those boundaries come from? You can say, well, surveyor teams went out after Wyoming became a state in 1891 and even prior to that time and they marked out all these lots and townships and sectors, sections. Paul says, yes, true enough. Human beings do that, but why do they do that? They do that because before and above that activity, God determined where you personally would live. The lot on which your house stands, the location within the building where your apartment is found, that was God's decision for you. And it gets personal. It's not just the deep past. 
It's the present, the breath you take now. Paul says, in fact, in him we live and move and have our being. Now he applies that. What what should we do about this? He's not just there to give the Athenians knowledge to tickle their fancy. Yes, he's correcting their ignorance, not only about what is, but also their ignorance about what ought to be done. And so he applies his message in verse 27 and says, the reason God determined where you would live is so that you could seek him. God was planning for you to grope for him and find him. Now this word grope is very interesting. We've all done it. You've got a high cupboard. You can't see into it. You're trying to get something. You're pretty sure there's something on the back of the shelf up there and you're reaching, you can't see, trying to find whatever it is. And you're groping around in the darkness, trying to locate this item. Paul says, that's a picture of the human race's search for God. What's our most powerful sense? Sight, the one we use all the time to make most, the vast majority of our decisions. Paul says, you don't see God. The human race did not hear God. They couldn't smell God. They couldn't taste God. Our most basic sense of all, the one that's hardest to lose, is the sense of touch. But it's also the most limited in range. You can only touch something right next to you. So what is Paul saying? God is right next to you. You could reach out and touch him. You could grope after him and you could find him. Even without sight, even without hearing, without the distance senses, you could find God just by touch, by groping after him in the dark. And that's why he did all these things for us. Why he made us, why he gave us life, breath, and everything. Why he determined where we would live and the boundaries of our historical periods. All of that was so that we would try to find him. So what is Paul's point? You Athenians need to seek God. Don't just be content with saying, well, I'm here. The world is here. Parthenon is here. I've got the gods of my ancestors. I'm fine. Paul says, no, you're supposed to seek God. That's why he puts you here in Athens. So you could be an Athenian and not a barbarian. The whole point was so that you would seek him. That's why he made us Americans. That's why he put us here in Gillette. So that we would seek him. Try to find God. It's what the human race is for. Paul goes on to say, God is our source. Not only does he provide for us, he made us. In Him we live and move and have our being. Not in the pantheistic sense that everything is God and when I walk through the room, I'm walking through God because God is the room and God is everything else. It would be better to translate the preposition by Him we live. By Him we move. By Him we have our being. It's God's work that gave us life, that gave us motion, that gave us, in fact, our very existence. God only not God not only made us 
what we are, God made us so we are. Or he made us to be. Without him, we wouldn't be here. And then Paul adds, in fact, not only do we have our being in God, by God's power, but we are his children. We are the offspring of the divine. That's a startling claim. The fatherhood of God. God is like us. So don't think that he is like gold or silver or stone. Don't think he's like your statue of Athena. Don't think he looks like a dollar bill. Don't think he looks like anything that can be seen in this world except yourself. That is, the divine nature is personal. It's not impersonal. God made you, and He made you to be like Him because you are His offspring. Now the New Testament goes on to say that we're God's children in a special sense when we believe in Jesus. But even prior to belief in Jesus, just by being human, we are in the image of God. We are offspring of God. And that's what Luke is getting at earlier in his gospel when he calls Adam the son of God. In other words, at its most fundamental, the power behind the universe is not impersonal, but personal. The world is not run by blind chance, matter in motion, energy, atoms crashing into each other randomly. That's not the most basic thing. More basic than the impersonal, the blind and uncaring, is the personal. The God who made the world and everything in it, in whom we live and move and have our being. And Paul says, look, this is not my idea. I'm quoting a Hellenistic poet who was from Paul's own province, Cilicia. And this poet had written these lines about 300 years before this time. We are his offspring. The poet may have been speaking of Zeus. He was certainly speaking of the high God. Paul says, it's true. The high God, the God who made the world, is the God who is our Father. He is like us. He is more like me than he is like the Son. He's more like you than he is like a rock or a tree because he is a tri-personal being. He's not like prosperity, food, peace, or other non-personal goods. God is personal. And so, Paul winds it up with, therefore, we shouldn't think wrongly about God. Don't think He looks like a man-made image. Instead, repent. God overlooked the times of ignorance when the whole world thought that He looked like stone images. He winked at that. He's going to drop that. But now... The final payoff is repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from your wrong practices. Repent of thinking you can make it on your own or that your Parthenon and your Athena will save you. 
Turn away from that because judgment day is coming. And Paul mentions that it's on the calendar. God has chosen the day. In other words, this is not something that can be postponed indefinitely. This is a matter, the judging of the world, that will be taken up at a definite time. On God's calendar, there's a month that comes to an end on a day, you could say it's circled in red, and it says, last day, judgment day. That date is a firm anchor in the divine schedule. That date is not going to move, it's not going to be postponed, it's not going to be canceled, it's happening. And because it's happening, you have to turn from sin... You have to turn from the folly of thinking that the divine nature is like gold, silver, or stone, that it's like the Parthenon or the statue of Athena, that it's like money and peace and pleasure that our culture worships. You have to recognize that God will judge the world. That is, God cares how you act. God cares how you think. God cares how you live. And he'll judge the world, but the crazy thing is that he will judge the world by a man. We talked about this very briefly last week. If you are judged by God personally, what do you want to say? Unfair. I demand a jury of my peers. I demand someone who understands what it's like to be human. It's easy for you to judge me, God. You're perfect. And you never needed anything. And you've never been hurt. And you've never been scared. And you've never been weak. And I am all of those things. And so you're going to judge me too harshly. But Paul cuts that off at the past and says, no, God isn't going to perform the final judgment. He's set a man to do it. Someone who has been hurt and weak and scared. Someone who does know what it's like to live on this earth, surrounded by the crazy, rotten things that we have to deal with, that's going to be the judge. And we know he will be the judge because God has raised this man from the dead. Right? This judge has been the victim of a crime. He's, the vict- he's a murder victim. Our current administration uh, has a distinct preference in judicial appointments for public defenders. I've read that so far about 80% of the judges appointed by our administration have a background as public defenders. The administration, rightly or wrongly, says better judges come not from the ranks of the prosecutors who say this is a crook who needs to go to jail from the ranks of the defenders who say, this guy had a bad break. We need to show mercy on him. Well, God has done one better. The judge he appoints is neither prosecutor nor nor defender, but actually a victim. Somebody who has suffered from crime is going to be the judge. Somebody who was wrongly murdered 
and then raised from the dead by God because he had done nothing wrong. Paul winds it up there. The judge is coming. He's a crime victim. He's been raised. Thanks for listening to me this morning. Some of them started to laugh. Been a while since they had heard anything this absurd. Some mocked. Resurrection of the dead? Really, Paul? Came all the way to Athens to vent your craziness? (coughs) But others said, I'd like to hear more about this. How should we respond? Well, obviously we shouldn't laugh. Say, Paul the nut. He traveled all over the Mediterranean saying, what? Instead, we should be like Dionysius and Damaris and the others who believed and say, Paul, I don't want to stand with the ignorant Athenians. I want to take my stand with you, the one who knows God as creator, as provider, as the source of humanity. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to know God, then you have to act on what you know. You have to, as Paul said, seek God. You have to not think wrongly about Him. You have to repent. Turn from your sin and say, when the judge comes, I want to face Him as one who trusts in Him as one who is forgiven. The kingdom came in Athens through Paul's preaching. We should listen to this sermon. And we should believe rightly about God and we should respond rightly to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though your son was the victim, was a murder victim, you raised him from the dead. And that now you have set the day on which he will return to judge the world in righteousness. Father, we pray that everyone here would be found on the right side in that judgment. We praise you for your honesty, your compassion, your mercy on us. In sending your son to save us before you send him to judge us. Help us to take refuge in him, to believe in him as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.